Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Welcome back to our podcast. Today we have Dr. Eddie Nguenya, plastic surgeon from Steve Biko Academic Hospital, and we're going to be talking a little bit around non-melanoma skin cancers. Welcome, Dr. Nguenya. But before we start with this, what are the layers of the skin? Now, I won't go elaborate. I think we all know there are three layers to the skin. There's the epidermis, of which there are five layers in thick skin and four layers in thin skin. There's the dermis, and there's the hypodermis. What are the layers of the epidermis and dermis that we should know about? The epidermis that would be the strata corneum, your strata lucidum, your strata granulosum, spinosum, and basali, which those combined, the spinosum and basali, would form the Malpingian layer. It's called Malpingian after an Italian biologist by the name of Marcello Malpingi, who named that after him. And then you get your dermis. There's the papillary dermis, and then there's your reticular dermis. Therein, you will find these adnexal structures, your, your, your bacinian corpuscles, mechal, you'll find your glands there, your sebaceous gland, your epocrine, crine, hair follicles. So that's where we'll find most of these. And then we go down to the area called the hypodermis or the subcutaneous tissue um, as the third layer before a fascial layer. Remind us briefly, where does melanoma originate from? We said melanoma is a cancer that comes from these cells called melanocytes that differentiate from these melanoblasts, from neural cast cells, go to the eye, to the skin, to the hair, and they, they differentiate into the melanocyte um, with, with, with this dendrites. So any cancer from that is melanoma. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about non-melanoma skin cancers. Which ones are these and which are the ones that we would commonly encounter in clinical practice? The most common of which is your basal cell carcinoma, your squamous cell carcinoma, which follows, and then these cancers called adnexal cancers, because these are skin cancers within that area. What are risk factors for getting non-melanoma skin cancers? Look, whenever we talk about risk factors, what I want you to always do is divide this into host and environment. Host factors being the patient themselves, the individual, and then environmental factors. Now, when we speak about hosts, what I want you to further do is to divide this into the phenotype, the genotype, speak about precursor lesions, and then, of course, the immunology that affects. What are phenotypic risk factors? Now, phenotypically, or the phenotype, we focus on the skin um, color, basically. So the more pale you are, the more chances of you getting these skin cancers. Of course, we use a classification called the Fitzpatrick score that looks at the ability to turn 
that is our greatest thing. There is also another score which we use is the Klakao classification, which focuses on photo aging. Therein we then divide into mild, moderate, I think advanced and then severe, and then we'll scale them. And of course, wherever you have severe photo aging, you are more predisposed to getting skin cancers. And risk factors related to the genotype? Now looking at the genotype, this looks at the genetics, mutations mainly here in the patched gene, which is the PTCH gene coding for the set, um, the sonic hedgehog um, signaling pathway. These are some of the things that we've identified for UV radiation, we've also picked up um, issues with the tumor suppressor genes which is the p um the the p53 gene so these are some of the things but we are certainly not so sure there are conditions which are associated with this now genotypically these are zero demapigmentosa that's one of them xp very rare condition um <clears throat> but we see it quite a lot in our population it's an autosomal recessive condition um and in essence there's just an impaired dna repair mechanism your thymine dimerizase um problems therein we have other things like albinism which is something that's also quite common ocular cutaneous albinism um, and that's divided mainly into four types, type one up until type four. And in essence, what it is, is a defective production of melanin from tyrosine. There's another syndrome which we call Gorlin syndrome. The other name is nevoid basal cell syndrome and it's more an autosomal dominant condition and there's a huge diagnostic criteria where we look at major um, and minor um, diagnostic criteria so in order to diagnose it you just need two major criteria or you may have one major and two minor and then there are other things like your porokeratosis um, which basically is just abnormal keratinization and these will mainly um, also degenerate into squamous cell carcinoma. What are precursor lesions for these non-melanoma skin cancers? Most common um, is actinic keratosis. Now this is due to chronic sun damage. And what you find with actinic keratosis is that there is a 10% risk of malignant transformation into squamous cell carcinoma. That's why we often, so curious and dermatologists would follow up these patients, have a look at them, and us as plastic surgeons, when they get um, to a worrisome level, perhaps, um, we then cut it out. There's also a cutaneous horn, which in essence, I can just say for your benefit, is very advanced actinic keratosis. Now, we also have um, other, you know, pre cancer precursor lesions, such as your Neva sebaceous of Charason. Now, these usually you have at birth, um, usually on the scalp or the face. They usually these hairless, yellowish plaques, but they're dangerous because about 10 to 15% will transform into what? A basal cell carcinoma. And then those bones disease, succinctly put, this is another name you can just say, this is squamous 
carcinoma inside you and this has 10% risk there's a 10% risk of that malignant um, you know transformation into an invasive um, cancer of course there's erythroblakia there's leukoplakia which are most common oral mucosa lesions and you need to just watch this carefully because there's a 15% risk of transformation also. Um, Keratoacanthoma, um, quite important, something you can keep at the back of your head because these sort of resemble squamous cell carcinoma histologically. However, um, they are not really. So what we usually do for those large ones, we just treat them as squamous cell carcinomas and resect them. Are there other risk factors that we should know about? The last factor um, under host for risk factors will be immunological. So immunosuppressed patients, just like patients who, are, who have AIDS, um, patients who uh, have, you know, renal transplant, patients who are on medication and treatment, aging is one risk factor for, you know, decreased immunity. How do you get that? Usually we know with aging, you have decreased mechanisms um, for DNA repair from sun damage breakage. Um, but also there's a decrease in the, um, the mechanism rather of immunologic surveillance. So that's why aging is a risk factor. Earlier, you mentioned environmental risk factors. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Now, those environmental factors, I think we can focus on four. UV radiation is a is a big, big, big one. UVA, UVB is what we are mostly concerned about. Um, and the reason I can tell you is mainly, look, looking at the ozone-rich um, stratosphere, it absorbs, um, you know, the, your any UV wavelength that is less than 290 nanometers. And that's why the ones that get through is your UVA, UVB. We never used to pay much attention to UVA, always afraid of UVB, but UVA is also important. Why? We don't know so much. We think, look, there's, there's an area where perhaps it might potentiate the effects of UVB, um, but also act as a potential carcinogen in itself. Ionizing radiation is another environmental risk factor. Chemicals, household, not entirely so sure. They may have a direct carcinogenic effect or in themselves they may magnify the del um, deleterious effects um, of UV radiation. And some of these are arsenic, smoking we know with the lips, you know, polycycline, um, aromatic hydrocarbons, assam and hydrogen or nitrogen rather, um, mustard are some of them. And of course, viral, don't forget that HPV has been shown. Up until now, you've really been talking a lot about squamous cell carcinomas and basal carcinoma risk factors. But earlier in the podcast, you mentioned that they're also at nexal skin cancers. Can you tell us a little bit about them? They are not so common um, compared to our cutaneous skin cancers. There are many of them. I just perhaps um, if you can just remember a few. Uh, Number one, Merkel cell carcinoma. 
very important tumor to know about. If I spoke Africans, I'll tell you they are dwarf hepharic, very dangerous, rare. The primary cutaneous neuroendocrine carcinoma. Remember, macro cells are mechanoreceptors um, uh, of neurocast origin. So, so, so these are, are, are neuroendocrine cancers of the skin. Now, there's a mnemonic that we always used to use, A-E-I-O-U, but as I grew up, it was I-E-O-U. And in A, we speak about A, it's asymptomatic. E, expanding rapidly. I, immunosuppressed patients. O, older patients greater than the age of 50. And then you, of course, exposure to ultraviolet skin. Now, the way you diagnose them, it's a, it's, it's a bit difficult because they 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 similar um, to small cell carcinoma and they may in themselves coexist with squamous cell carcinoma or basal cell carcinoma. Therefore, you know, these you would need immunohistochemistry um, where actually we would look at two major things, you know, neurofilament proteins and cytokeratin 20 and usually those those things that are distinct um, to Merkel cell carcinoma. Now, the prognosis is bad. It's worse than the prognosis for melanoma. The factors, prognostic factors, quite similar to melanoma. But these, you understand, you don't want to play around. You want to treat this. And how do we treat it? Wide local excision. Two to three centimeter margin, we agree. There are some who may even say, look, these are so extensive. And in fact, 55% of these patients, as we've seen, will have lymph node involvement. And so some may say you may need to do an elective lymph node dissection. I'll just say for your purposes, just know that we resect them and we may then use radiotherapy. Chemotherapy is for palliation in these patients, but consider certainly a lymph node dissection. Another type of adnexal tumor? The second adnexal tumor, maybe you can think, you know, keep in your, at the back of your head, sebaceous um, carcinoma. They are rare, but also aggressive, um, derived from sebaceous glands. The issue with them is the recurrence rate is very high. So usually you will get these um, yellow or orange plaques which are usually around the periauricular region. Actually, 75% will be periauricular. And how do we treat them? White local excision. That's it. That's all I need you to know. There's also porocarcinoma. We know the eccrine, inocrine, um, eccrine, you know, um, glands also. Um, usually, we find these quite a lot. Um, or more associated rather, you know, with the elderly patients in the lower limbs. They grow very slow and lymph node metastasis or rather um, spread is rather infrequent. So they're not as bad as the previous two we spoke about, your Merkel and Sabacious. There's also something called extra memory patients disease. They are of apocrine gland origin. Classically, in the perineum, wide local excision is important, but high rates of recurrence, up to 50% will recur. And then the last one, maybe you must know, um, is microcytic adnexal cancers. Head and neck, usually 
around those areas, older patients, slow growing, recurrent, um, but they are rare. There are other cancers, of course, your pilomatrix cancer, your malignant chondroid um, syngroma, your hydradenocarcinoma, eccrine spironocarcinomas. Those are just things that maybe you can remember to mention. But if you can remember Merkel cell, sebaceous, porocrine, extra um, memory, patriots, microcytic, adnex cell cancers, I'm a happy man. I think those are the main ones that you need to know about. So those were the rare um, skin cancers. Can you maybe tell us about a more common one, such as basal cell carcinoma? Look, allow me to, to work with the assumption that we have already, we are, we've diagnosed this patient. So we've taken our history where we've looked at the risk factors that affect the patient. We've made a diagnosis looking at the lesion clinically. We are worried about it. We take a biopsy, we get a result and it says basal cell carcinoma. So whenever we speak about cancer specific, we'll always look at the epidemiology. You want to know about the biology, where does it origin and the etiology of the, the tumor. Subtypes are important and then your management, mainly the immediate and how you manage recurrent lesions and how you follow up these patients are important. So let's speak about BCC. Now, epidemiologically, um, this is the most common skin cancer. Now, it is about four to five times more common than squamous cell carcinoma and it is almost exclusively in light-skinned people. That's quite interesting because certainly in our experience, um, we've picked up some cases that um, were in the black population. However, whenever I see it in a black population, I always question it. And if you send it back to the pathologist and they look further into it, they actually have picked up in the ones that we've sent back that it's not BCC. So I can say up to now, I have not seen it in anyone um, who is of a black population. At which anatomic sites do basal cell carcinomas occur? More than 80% of them are in the head and neck region. Within the head and neck region, majority are on the nose. In fact, it is the most common eyelid cancer that you get. Biologically, it originates from pluripotent epithelial cells of the epidermis and also the hair follicles. Um, at this, you, you know, the dermis, the demo, epidermal um, junction, that's where we have them. There's that strata basali, which we spoke about. And we are unsure really about the pathophysiology um, as, look, we've seen acquired mutation in the PTCH1, which is a receptor for the hedgehog um, Sony E protein um, that's been associated with um, xeroderma pigmentosa, sporadic basal cell carcinoma. We've also seen the importance of other, you know, proteins, COX, cytochrome P450, vitamin D receptors. So we are uncertain. However, what's important is the origin, which is that demo-epidermal junction. Are there different types of basal cell carcinoma? This cancer, there are 26 types of basal cell carcinoma. We're speaking about the histological pattern, of course. 
38.5% are even mixed. So there's so many of these, but perhaps we can focus on six that I'd like you to know. Nodular, which is the most common, about 50 to 60% of the patients, predominantly on the face. These may be ulcerated, mind you. Ulcerated in the sense that they'll have this rolled out um, borders and the central ulcer that shares resemblance with a rodent ulcer. The, 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 the next will then be your spreading. That's the next common. But 9 to 15% of patients will come with this spreading subtype. Now, this involves the epidermis only. And that's why it may be at times confusing because it can get mistaken for you, things like your fungal infection, um, your tinea keratosis. Um, and so these predominantly, you would find them on the trunk. Your next common would be your micronodular, 15% of patients, and these are just round, um, small nodules um, that look, you know, like small hair follicles. And, and, and then there's also a type called infiltrative in about 7% of patients who present with these opaque yellow-white um, lesions which have variable sizes and jagged edges. Then another subtype is pigmented subtype. That's about 6% of patients. Now, they derive the pigment from melanoma. The, what's interesting is that these are often then confused for melanoma because it's easy to confuse them because of their pigmentation. The last one that I think you need to know about is morphoform oslerosing or fibrotic it's about two to three percent very aggressive in fact they present as almost this enlarging scar with no history of trauma whatsoever there's a high incidence of of, of positive margins for this tumor um and so these are the ones that are of 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 high risk and we should worry then about are you saying that it is difficult to get a, a clear or an R0 resection margin when excising a basal cell carcinoma? Look, not, not necessarily. Um, what I mean is that due to its manner of growth and clinical appearance, there's an increased chance that after cutting it out, you will have positive margins or recurrence thereof. Look, generally, when we look at basal cell carcinoma, about 30 to 50% um, will recur within five years. Now, the metastatic rate is very low. It's about less than 0.1%. But the, the patients that will recur, or rather, let me put it this way, the risks for recurrence usually is it's, it's operator dependent, so the operator um, experience. The anatomical sites, of course, head and neck, there's greater recurrence than your trunk, your histology subtype, your excision um, of multifocal tumors that are coming, you know, that you are doing during the one procedure. So these are some of the things that will alert you. Um, therefore, these you would like them to be treated differently compared to then the others.
What is your approach to the treatment of a patient who has a basal cell carcinoma? I think when it comes to treatment, what you want to do is divide your, 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 your patients into two groups. Those with high risk and those who are low risk. High risk speaks about all those issues we spoke about when we spoke about the risk factors. Um, so it's your poor prognostic factors. It looks at the depth. Um, some would say Breslau more than two millimeters. It looks at your infiltration. Is the perineural invasion, um, you know, lymphovascular invasion. The anatomical side, of course, as we've mentioned um, in the central phase, the behavior of the tumor, the biology, its invasiveness, the differentiation, the subtypes, we said morpheoform, quite dangerous. The size, um, which we are slowly moving away from, historically would say, look, if it's more than two centimeters in the trunk or more than one centimeters on the face, further would say if it's on the central face and more than six millimeters, those ones are high risk. But in general, the principles, you want to divide your tumors because that will inform your management. What do we have available as treatment options for these patients? The treatment options or modalities that you have are three. Medical, destructive, and surgical. Medical, what we speak of, um, are those topical agents that you will put on the wound, you see. So, and usually reserved for, you know, if surgery or radiotherapy is contraindicated or impractical, um, then we'll do it. There are those who will say it is effective for multiple low-risk superficial lesion or things like Bowman's disease, which is your SCC inside you. I'm not really too great a fan of them. Um, options are Aldara, which is immigrant mob, 5%, there's 5-fluorouracil, the, what we use is FUDX, there's 3% diclofenac gel, your Solaraz, um, which you may use in patients who are less compliant with your Aldara and 5-fluorouracil. Um, um, other options, it's radiotherapy, you may use it primarily, um, usually for non-operable um, patients where surgery is contraindicated or age more than 60 years old um, or as an adjuvant treatment for high risk, you know, with perineural positive margins. If you have positive lymph nodes, um, you may then consider this. There is also new things that um, are being used, your hedgehog pathway inhibitors, such as your um, Vismodegib, I think, yeah, Vismodegib on Vismodegib. So that's one of them that you may use um, in order to assist you. What are the destructive methods of treatment that you referred to earlier? Curatation, um, electrodesiccation. Basically in curatage, you remove the visible tumor and with your desiccation, you, you remove the residual malignant cells. Um, so it tries to burn them. Your cryotherapy where you cool the cells, your tumor cells to minus 40 degrees in order to then destroy them. There's laser phototherapy where we use our CO2, um, pulse CO2. But what you must know is that the depth is limited to your papillary dermis. And also there's photodynamic therapy that you may use. Not too big a fan. The problem with all of these, what? 
you don't have a histological sample. So you've burnt this, but you cannot prove that it's completely out. The only way you can prove is through your surgical options, where you cut it out, you send it to the lab, the results come back and say it's completely out or it's not completely out. So surgical options is what we then tend to favor. Um, for low-risk lesions, the margin you'd follow is four millimeters. For high-risk lesions, you're looking at about a 10 millimeter margin. We're happy with that. Now, the gold standard is of course by far most micrographic surgery, which has a 99% cure rate. What is Mohs microsurgery? It's when they, you know, you go into theater, you go in with the pathologist, you take small sections, they look at it under microscope, they say cut more, you go and cut up until you've got a clear margin and then you can do your reconstruction there. You've dealt with the patients 100%. Rather than resecting, sending it, getting a histology and then having to go back and operate the patient. But due to limited resources, um, due to the technical expertise and the expenses thereof, we then limit it to special circumstances. So I, there are indications for most uh, micrographic surgery, which are a recurrent lesion, cosmetically sensitive areas, different subtypes, which spoke about that morpheoform, poorly delineated, um, delineated margins where you can't really see and poor bi biology um, thereof. And of course, the last thing that you can then look at um, is then your adjuvant treatment that you can then use. For how long do you need to follow these patients up to see if they get a recurrence? Not generally, look, for BCC, 6 to 12 months, um, where you will examine the patient. And what you want to do um, is then, you know, educate the patient. It's about sunscreen. It's about self-examination. If you do find a recurrence or incomplete excision, which about 4.7%. Treatment is rather controversial. You can do one of two things. Some will say, look, let's go. This is an indication for Mohs micrographic surgery, which I agree with. Others will say, look, you can cut it. You can take um, a, a margin of five to 10 millimeters as per the UK guidelines, which follow an article by Berg in 1975. You await a histology, it comes back negative and then you reconstruct. That's also fine. And then of course, others will say, no, just go for radiotherapy. If, if it's still recurrent after radiotherapy, perhaps look at systemic treatment with hedgehog pathway inhibitor. So those are your options um, and your follow-up period for these patients. That's been a lot of information around basal cell carcinoma. How about squamous cell carcinoma? It is the second most common cancer, usually um, the second to BCC in sun-exposed areas, so you'll see it on the face, your hands, your forearms, um, and this basically arises from the Malpilgian layer. The difference with basal cell carcinoma is that this is more aggressive. Now, it also is able to spread to lymph nodes. 
that's different. And also there's hematogenous um, spread that may take place where it may spread to lungs, to the liver, to the brain, to the skin, to bones. So that's the one thing that is a bit of a problem. Now, as per the lymph nodes, what you will usually see is that in about 35% of the patients, they will have lymph node, um, you know, uh, um, spread. But what is interesting is that there's rather a 35% five-year survival despite doing a lymph node dissection. So of patients who present with already lymph node metastasis, there is a 35% five-year survival even if you do a lymph node dissection. And most of these deaths, interesting enough, are secondary to ear lesions. So for these, you want to make sure that you cut them out because recurrence is high. I mean, the three-year cumulative risk of a subsequent squamous cell carcinoma um, after an index one is about 18%. And so you follow then the predictors of, of, of recurrence. How does cellular differentiation affect recurrence rates? For, for lesions that are well differentiated, there's a 7% recurrence, moderately 23%. Poor differentiated, you're looking at 28%. What are some other factors that are associated with recurrence and poor prognosis? The depth is quite important, especially if it goes to the reticular dermis or the subcutaneous tissue, it's quite dangerous. In fact, um, some literature will say a penetration of greater than 8 millimeters is associated with an increased death rate. Of course, perineural invasion, um, desmoplastic squamous cell carcinoma, um, and, and, and if you look at a meta-analysis effect that was taken out by Thompson in the JAMA um, Dermatology 2016, we what they said, they focused on a Breslau of more than two millimeters, um, a size, they, they looked at the size and the site which came through, also mentioned in the HACC guidelines, of the lip, the ear, and the temple of being those tumors that are likely to, to then recur. Are there different subtypes of squamous cell carcinoma? Now, all types of SCC are histologically similar with irregular masses of squamous epithelium proliferation with downward you know, infiltration towards the dermis. The way we grade these will be based on the degree of differentiation. In these cancers, what do you mean by differentiation? Now, this is a measure of the ratio um, of a typical pleomorphic and anaplastic cells that you take as compared to the normal epithelium. And then you will look and say, no, this is well differentiated compared to that. This is moderately, or this is poor differentiated. So we don't really have subtypes. But what we can look at is that we have squamous cell carcinoma inside you, and we have infiltrative squamous cell carcinoma. We know the one inside you, we've spoken about it, bones disease, um, which is asymptomatic. It's well demarcated, you know, this 
scanty patches that you get in the penis um there's a term the erythroplasia of quarat is what we call them if it if if it appears in that area invasive of course we spoke about it you say well differentiated moderately or poorly differentiated if there are no real subtypes of squamous cell carcinoma are there variations of this skin cancer your varicose, um, which is low grade, um, usually in the palms and soles of feet. We're not sure if it's secondary to trauma or chronic irritation or infection. There's also your ulcerative, which is quite aggressive, and the ones you find underneath the nail beds, which is um, subingual. So those are just to keep. But I think if there's one important one you must remember, is something called a margulin's ulcer. Where would we typically find margulin's ulcers? This is, is, is usually an ulcer that is secondary to, to chronic inflammation or injury that develops over many years. In fact, the average is 32.5 years that, that this then, you know, takes. But this um, is more associated with burns that are raw, that were not grafted. Um, and with that, it carries a 2% lifetime risk of malignant transformation. Therefore, for these patients, you must have a high index of suspect suspicion. So if you see a chronic wound that suddenly has these unexpected changes, it may be pain, it may be odor, or it's discharging, you want to biopsy these because these are aggressive. Why are they aggressive? We're not sure. Maybe they, they are biology or the late presentation of patients. But for these patients, you want to take an incision or a wedge biopsy on their edges, on the center, um, which is very good to diagnose. You have a less than 2% false negative rate. And if it comes back, as SCC, you do a wide local excision and a skin graft. There may be times where it's extensive on the limb, requiring limb amputation. Um, but a generally, we'll do that. And if we palpate lymph nodes, we'll do a lymph node dissection. What about chemotherapy or radiotherapy in these patients instead of amputating their limbs? Radiotherapy, chemotherapy, really poor response to that. Why? Remember the vascularity we suspect is the problem. Um, and you have this fibrosis and so it doesn't work so well. So we reserve radiotherapy for palliative and um, then cases. What is your approach to a patient who has an SCC? I think we can approach it the same way as we did with basal cell carcinoma. There's medical, there's destructive, and there's surgical. Medical, radiotherapy, there's this data that tells you nine, there's a 90% cure rate. There's chemotherapy um, that you may use um, as an adjunct for larger tumors, recurrence, metastasis, and we generally would use cisplatin with or without 5 fluorouracil and then there are destructive options, which are your curatage, electrodecation, your cryosurgery for small superficial lesions. But remember, and I will always make this point, the disadvantage, you don't have histology to confirm. Therefore, surgical is still the mainstay of treatment. 
The first being excision with a wide local um, margin. What kind of margins are we talking about? Remember I said we divide them into low risk, high risk. So the margin that you are going to use for this is if it's less than two centimeters, it's grade one. There's low risk regions or anatomical regions and the depth limited to the epidermis. Those ones you want to margin more than four millimeters. We are happy. However, if it's more than um, two centimeters, the grade is two to three. A two, three, or four grade. It's a high risk lesion, squamous cell carcinoma that goes down to the subcutaneous depth tissue. Those ones you then definitely want to do a six millimeter resection margin. With basal cell carcinoma, you mentioned a technique called Mohs micrographic surgery. Are we able to use this technique in squamous cell carcinoma as well? It remains the gold standard for these. The indications are the same. Remember, we went through the indications. We spoke about um, the, the cosmetically sensitive areas where we will focus on um, the recurrent lesions and areas that we are quite worried about and the subtypes. So here, if it's infiltrative, we may then opt for most macrocastrium surgery. What is your management of lymph nodes in these patients? If it's high risk and there's no palpable lymph nodes, you do a sentinel lymph node biopsy. If the sentinel lymph node comes back positive, you go back and do a lymph node dissection. If initial examination, you have positive lymph nodes, you do an FNA and histologically they are positive, you do a lymph node dissection. Look, there are some who may say elective lymph node dissection. These, I would say, we let's limit it to two situations. If on the head and neck, it extends to the parotid capsule, and if it is in this contiguous basin, in other words, neighboring to a lymph node basin, then those patients are the patients that we will then do a um, elective lymph node dissection for. Once you've resected the SCC, how do you follow these patients up? Remember, when we speak about follow-up, the most intensive period is the first five years. And so for local disease, what we want to do for the first two years, we will follow these patients up with our examination, looking at the lymph nodes, for the first two years, three to six months. Then 16 to 12 months for the next three years, and then annually thereafter. For regional disease, the first year, one to three months. Then two to four months for the next year. Then four to six months for the third year and 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 the, the subsequent three years. And then lastly, then we would follow them up for six to 12 months for the rest of the, the, the lifetime. Apart from regular follow-up, what else would you do for these patients? 
we would then do patience education um, about sun protection. You want to teach them about self-examination um, so that they are better able to take care of themselves. This has been a very comprehensive overview of non-melanoma skin cancers, especially with regards to squamous cell carcinoma and basal cell carcinoma. Do you have any take-home messages for our listeners? Skin cancer is common. If you get a patient with skin cancer, you want to divide it into melanoma or non-melanoma skin cancers. Non-melanoma skin cancers, you divide them into adnexal, which are rare, or cutaneous, the most common of which are basal cell carcinoma followed by squamous cell carcinoma. Then you diagnose a patient by looking at the history, wherein the risk factors are important. And then you examine them and you biopsy the lesion. Um, and when you get a biopsy, it then comes back and gives you the diagnosis and subtypes. With all that information, what you then want to do is distinguish, is this a high-risk lesion or a low-risk lesion? This will dictate the extent of the treatment that you are then going to provide. And the treatment options that you have, it's medical, it's destructive, it's surgical. Note, medical and destructive, we have no histology, so no certainty. With surgical, margins is what matters. So you look at low risk, high risk, and then use the right margins. You then go for most micrographic surgeries, if indicated as it is our gold standard. Lymph nodes, we've spoken about them. If they are positive, you dissect them. If it's high risk and they are negative, you then do a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And then, of course, there's adjuvant treatment that you can look at when it comes to the high risk or the low risk. And follow up, the five years is the intensive period, and then you then follow up annually for the rest teaching the patients to take care of themselves, sun protection and self-examination being the main thing. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Nguenya, and we look forward to future podcasts with you. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics.